I'm Ian Dallimore, and this is Digital and Dirt. I was his lifeguard. He was on that Sinan show? <laughs> In the seventh grade, I got a motorcycle. All right, guys. Well, I am super excited. I Beyond excited. Actually, I woke up a little nervous this morning about this interview. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that. Yeah. I, I've already told my guests that there's going to be a lot of braggadocious moments here. But my next guest, honestly, he's a legend in the space and he's very humble and he's not going to admit this, but he's been with Lamar, the CMO, for over 37 years. He's won multiple awards, most importantly, the AAA Hall of Fame Award, as well as the Marketing Award, the AAF Silver Award Marketing of the Year Award. And I'm sure he's got hundreds of other trophies that he's too humble to tell about. But more importantly, this guest has been a mentor. I call him a friend. I know he's an amazing grandfather and just an all-around amazing man. And, and this gentleman interviewed and hired me as an intern years ago, 16 years ago. And I tell him weekly that I owe him a, a debt of gratitude or, you, or I owe you a, man, why'd you ever hire me? But uh, <laughs> I'm excited to have a conversation today with Tommy Teeple. Tommy, nice to have you. Hey, it's great to be here, Ian. And I just want to tell you, You've come such a long way from Temptation Island. Oof, we dove right there. <laughs> for those that don't know what that is, it's a good way for Let my wife. Let me tell him. Yeah, Let me you, tell Tommy, him. you could tell him. So Ian is working in, uh, was it AAA baseball? Yeah, AAA. Okay. And he was the head of marketing for his AAA baseball team. And he had always wanted to be on this Survivor show. And the guys knew that. And what they did is they told him that they were going to submit him to Survivor, or that they'd already submitted him to Survivor, so he didn't put up any kind of fuss. Where they submitted him to was this brand new reality show called Temptation Island, where they put a group of women who were in love and in most cases engaged to guys. So they put those couples on, and then they put a couple of stray dogs like Ian, (laughs) who their job was to separate these couples over that period. And Ian found out when he got to the island that it was not going to (laughs) be, that that it was not going to be survival of the fittest. It was going to be, if you want to get married, you better survive this or you are gone. That brings me back about 20 something years. Or as another individual that I worked here, I won't say his name or his wife's name, but she said, he was on that Sinan show. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's still films going around right now that you can see of the torch ceremony. If you want to be able to count uh, Ian's abs, you can see him walk through the torch ceremony at night. So don't miss that. It'll be hooked to this podcast. Yeah, we'll put the link in the bio for sure. (laughs) So (laughs) thanks for walking me down memory lane there. I may have to hit the gym after this. Don't play this for your wife. (laughs) So let's fast forward. I did start minor league baseball. I did have a, a girlfriend that lived in Baton Rouge, now my wife. And she kind of gave me the ultimatum and was like, hey, look, if you're going to do this, I need you to move up to Baton Rouge. I'm scrambling for a job because at the time I'm 23, maybe 24, and I'm way, way too young to be the director of marketing of a AAA baseball team. But I had the job and I had my sights set on this amazing Baton Rouge-based company called Raising Canes, founder Todd Graves, who's a friend of Lamar. And... There was a position, there was a director of marketing, and I was yeah. like, oh, perfect, I'm, yeah. I'm qualified for that, which I was not at all. <laughs> so I had happened to know Tommy's son, or one of his sons, very well, and we had classes together, so I had known of Tommy, 
And I'd known he had had a relationship with Kane. So I, I think I reached out to your son and was like, hey, could your dad like nudge my resume over? Yeah. So Taylor came over one night and brought him in and introduced him. And the head of marketing for Kane's, and at that time, Kane's probably had, what, maybe 100 restaurants? Mm-hmm, probably okay. so, yeah. not, They're not the behemoth they are now, but, but they were growing, and they were growing fast. We had a person who was formerly a sales manager for Lamar, who had left Lamar and become the head of marketing for Kane's. Great move for her, and I had known her since she was probably three years old. So I felt like we had a pretty good relationship. You know, I knew her parents really well. I knew her. And I said, no problem, me, and I'll do that. And then commenced to fail within about five minutes after that because I started calling Renee, my good friend, and she would not return my phone calls. I even was in a restaurant one night with my wife, saw her and her husband sitting at another table and asked the waiter to go ahead and bring me the check for him. And I did. And they waved at me on the way out. But that was it. <laughs> and, and not and not just any restaurant. You're at Ruth's Chris. So this, uh, yeah. so this tab is pretty expensive. So I was just, I kept thinking, you know, I, I know I've offended a lot of people in my life, but I didn't think I'd gotten down to Renee yet. So <laughs> I was puzzled about what was going on. It was probably my resume was that yeah. bad. And so Ian comes back. <laughs> And he tells me, I'm not hearing from Keynes at all. And kind of poured out the story about, you know, fiance at that time had drawn the line. And at this time, we were short on money at Lamar. And I said, I can't offer you a full-time job. But what I can do, what I can do is if you're willing to go get someplace and wait on tables at night, I can give you 30 hours a week. I think it was $8 an hour. $8, yeah. Yeah. Now, here's the guy with a college graduate. Okay, who's trying desperately to get into the chicken finger business. Trying so hard. That's when I fry some chicken. And <laughs> failing miserably because I was failing him miserably that I had to help him get in to Lamar. And I told him then, I said, look, you work like somebody that's making six figures. And eventually around here, something's going to open up. And I guarantee you the person that's in this office that's made a great impression is going to have an edge over somebody that's being interviewed for the first time. So he did that. For one year. One year. Y'all, for one year, with his diploma in hand, having been heading marketing for a very successful AAA ball club, Ian was now making $8 an hour and trying to keep a good attitude about it and waiting on tables at, what's what's the name of that restaurant? Bonefish Grill. Yeah, Bonefish Grill. In the meantime, I find out what happens. Renee, who was the head of marketing for Kane's, found out that Todd wanted to move the corporate office to Dallas, Texas, because that's the hub of fast food corporations, and that's the best place to do business, and it's good to get somebody that already is familiar from a marketing standpoint with the people that are inside the Dallas hubway. So that's what happened, and then she said, that's why I couldn't talk to you. I wasn't being rude. They swore me to secrecy, and I knew if I talked to you, I would say, please don't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. And she knew me well enough that I would tell everybody. And so that, that's why, otherwise, okay. she, she would have hired Ian in a second. And I thanked her because that was an incredible gift on her part to not interview Ian because Ian took the program, and particularly digital, with no one's encouragement and decided to make it his own and took it to where it is today. And I appreciate that. Tommy yeah. still won't tell me how much that bill is at Ruth's Chris that I owe him, but I can only <laughs> imagine. 
But I think it, that's one of the gifts that you bring, Tommy, is that you've always found people, given people chances and opportunities. And I've seen it over my career, the different people that you've touched, just the amount of respect that you have in this space. And again, I know sometimes uh-huh. it's tough to hear because you are such a humble person, but you've left an impression on so many people in Lamar, and it's got to make you feel so good. If I could say one thing about Tommy, it's, it's never about Tommy. It's about everyone else and Tommy wanting to give that little, little seed, little nugget to like run and say, all right, here's an opportunity. Show me what you can do with it. Anymore. Yeah. And look, thank you. But I've been really blessed and I can only say this. And I really think it had a lot to do with it. When Kevin hired me, you know, back in uh, 84, he gave me total freedom and full Mm. reign to do basically whatever I thought was necessary. And some of the things I did, I think were okay. I did some things that weren't really okay. (laughs) And he let me know right away. But when it came down to people, and I'm really tickled because Kevin has only hired two people. Right. He hired me and he hired Brent McCoy. We were the only two people he claims that he ever hired. And this is Kevin Riley, junior chairman of the board, former CEO. Yeah. Yeah. When I met him, I was his lifeguard, and he was uh, 14, but that goes way back. But anyway, Kevin just gave me so much freedom that when I found somebody like an Ian or, golly, like a, a Cheryl Zimmerman mm-hmm. and Mindy and Allie and you know so many more, it's never been a worry of mine that, well, they're going to question me on this hire. Because typically when I hired, most of the people I hired had no experience at all. And so there always was a question in the back of my mind, who's going to ask that question? Right. (laughs) Why in the world are you hiring them? But they all worked out. Yeah. You know, we talked about it in a couple of other episodes. It's about culture. And I think that that's why Lamar is so successful is the structure and the people. I've learned this from Sean Riley, our CEO today that it's all about surrounding yourself with similar people with great values. The talent aspect is going to be there. The passion side is what you have to worry about, right? And, and then being able to trust them. And trust 100%. That's probably why Kevin gave you the freedom, right? Is, yeah. But I think oftentimes people are so afraid to make a mistake, yeah, high stakes mistakes, because they don't want to be reprimanded or in fear of like, I'll never be given that opportunity again. But from a management perspective, maybe touch on that. If you're not taking chances, you're going to be with the rest of the average employees and you're not going to be very successful. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's so many people that I grew up with in this company that I saw take those chances. I mean, I think of Bobby Switzer. Bobby used to tell everybody he was a Rodney Dangerfield of Lamar because anytime he did something, people would just jump on him. Mm-hmm. But I looked at the way Bobby Switzer went out in the early days when it would cost anywhere from 400 to $600 if you wanted to do a poster. So Bobby was the one that came up with the idea of looking at people that cut fabric, patterns for fabric, with this sharp needle and using that process to make the overlay that you use in the printing process where you throw in red, you throw in green, you throw in yellow mm-hmm. to make the different combination of colors to get the four colors. Mm-hmm. And he brought the cost down with that. And then eventually Bobby pioneered and pushed printing companies across the country and look at the price that we pay now right. for, for a color poster. Right. And that's, that's a Bobby Switzer. Bobby Switzer was the guy that when we had no money 
And they said, how come you're not cutting Bobby's budget? You're cutting all the regional managers' budgets. You're cutting the marketing budget. Kevin said, because he just won't let go. He won't let go. And what Bobby wouldn't let go for is he insisted that we have cedar trim and replace it if it looks bad, that we replace lights, that every pole be painted, that every structure look good. Even when we were worried about how to make payroll, Bobby was worried about making sure the inventory looked good. Man, are we blessed that Kevin trusted and Sean trusted Bobby mm-hmm. in those beginning years. And to be around that, yeah. uh, that's often when you talk about company culture, I think a lot of times people think it's, oh, it's the coffee machine or the ping pong table. Oh. But I think it's more than that, right? So for you to be around a Bobby Switzer and legends in, at Lamar over the years, yeah. that had to have driven you. It did. It did. I mean, there were so many. I mean, I think of Tom Sermon taking over Nashville. Mm-hmm. We paid a fortune for Nashville. We didn't have the money to pay for it. It wasn't working out. Mm-hmm. We had a bunch of uh, what I would call country western Dick Clarks that were the county executives. They were all over 60. And Tom Sermon is like 30 years old, goes into Nashville, fires everybody, everybody. Wow. Hires what we found out later on was an 18-year-old sales manager from Nagley, Tim Jamison. And Tom Sermon and Tim Jamison rebuilt that whole plant, and it became the most profitable office in Lamar. But boy, I tell you what, Kevin and Sean had to just bite their bottom lips so hard it was bleeding yep. when Tom was making those big moves. Mm-hmm. So the the theme within the company, and granted, we do have a lot of people that are yeah. very pointed and specific in their nature, like Jay Johnson, CFO, has been through finance. But on the sales side, on the GM side, you can go across the 180 plus Lamar markets and their experience may be this was their first job out of college yeah. or, hey, I was an installer. That's right. And no experience in the out-of-home space. And I think that's what makes Lamar unique. So your career, I keep using the word legend, but you literally have the awards at, from IBM and Xerox that prove that out. But you were a CPA when you first started. I wasn't a CPA. That's why I'm not still there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what happened was I was graduating in accounting in uh, 73 and if y'all remember, I mean, that was coming off of Woodstock. There weren't a whole lot of people that wanted to be accountants. And I was, uh, I was not the smartest guy, but I lived by my grade point average. And so this group that is now called KPMG had opened up an office in southern Louisiana. And they went through transcripts. And apparently, because I went to LSU, there weren't anybody else making grades like I was. So by luck of the draw, they hired me, and that was my first job. And it was good because at that time, I was a lifeguard, married, and I had a three-month-old. So I was really excited to get a job that paid you in the wintertime because lifeguard pretty well closed down in September. So I did that. I did it, worked in public accounting for two years, and I hated every minute of my life. I mean, on Sunday nights, I would break out in hives, literally, because I knew what I was going to have to do the next day. But the wonderful thing was it taught me how the inside, the nerve center, the circulatory system, the brain function of a corporation, because that's what you fool with when you're auditing and you're doing tax work. Then I spent off into sales with with Xerox because my fraternity brothers, one of them was working for Xerox, and I used to do his tax return, and I got sick when I saw how much money he was making because I knew good and well he quit going to class after Wednesday afternoon. And I knew that he copied 
my finals at least three times, and I said, it's just not fair. He said, what? I said, did you make this much money, and you barely got out of school? Right. And he told me this, and it stuck. He said, Tommy, fair is where you go to ride the rides and see the animals, and it has nothing to do with life, so come to work with us. Yeah. And so I did. And Xerox ended up being a great gig, and I ended up making more money than I ever thought I could, and I was ended up running a race, and it was a long one. And so I had a long time to chat with the guy running with me who ended up being the general manager for IBM in Baton Rouge. And we knew of each other, but we'd never talked to each other because we were obviously uh, competitors. And when we finished the race, he said, I shouldn't be talking to you. And I said, I understand that. And he said, but I do want you to know that if you didn't work for Xerox, you'd be working for IBM tomorrow. And so two weeks later, I went to work for IBM. And, and that was a great experience. And that's really what got me here. Yeah. So you led sales training. Well, it? what happened was I was an AE out in the boondocks. Right. and Selling uh, copy machines out in the boondocks? Yeah. And it wasn't the IBM PC. That hadn't come out yet. Mm-hmm. And I had been given an offer, and I went down to Boca Raton to go to work with them. But I, I realized this, I, there's I no way I could afford a house in Boca Raton, right. yeah. okay, even with what they were paying me. So I turned that down. And instead, I'm selling these forerunners of the PC out in places like New Iberia, Louisiana, Bowbridge. High, high, high demand for IBM. High products. demand, high yeah, demand. And sure. I find out the third quarter of the year, my manager calls me up and says, you're the uh, number one salesman for IBM right now in the nation. Oh, wow. And I went, you mean in the office? And he said, no, in the nation. And I went, no. And he said, Buddy, you, you, you don't want to lose this. And so I was feeling pretty good about my life. Right after Thanksgiving, he called me up and told me a guy in New York had just sold a massive order to Exxon and passed me up. And I said, find out how many. Hmm. And he did. And I knew this. That guy was going to hang up his spurs. He was done for the yeah, year. Yeah, because nobody works after Thanksgiving. Okay. <laughs> and, um, well, have we heard that so many times? Oh, yeah. And I figured out what it was. And the only day I didn't work was Christmas, and I ended up becoming the national sales leader for IBM. That's what caught Kevin's eye, I think, more than me being his lifeguard. Right. But was there an event in your life where you were told you weren't good enough? Because, again, you're you're the second place in the country selling – you know, yeah. IBM out in the middle of nowhere and you yeah. got a guy in New York that beat you. You could have easily been like, yeah, well, if I had a bigger territory yeah. or a different market. If I had New York City. I'd, yeah. 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 You would have tripled his number. But what was there a moment or a few instances, maybe you lost a race in football or you got oh, dunked on or. There were thousands of situations yeah. like that. You know, first of all, I was the second of four mm-hmm. and my older brother is four years older. I'm not exaggerating. And he, he has since apologized to me, but he beat me up every day. Wow. So I had to learn to fight just to be able to keep him off of me. I was also fortunate in that I grew up in a family, by the day standards, I probably the police would have shut him down, but <laughs> I had a lot of freedom. I, I mean, in the seventh grade, I got a motorcycle, and I was 14 going on 15, and I drove that thing all over this city, and I didn't. It took a while before I figured out what a stoplight was because you didn't have to have a license to do it, but I got away with it. Yeah. And in sports, it was always, I was almost there, almost there. So I found out that I just had to put in more time in the weight room 
and I had to spend more time running, and I had to get a lot smarter. And then the day comes when you go to work, and I've already had one son, Tommy, and then Timmy comes along right afterwards. And I knew that I wanted to one day live in a house and be able to take my kids out to eat in a restaurant. I thought that would be the epitome of success. Yeah. I was just, I was driven. Yeah. And it's, it always came down to, not because I wanted so much to please everybody else, but because there were things in life I wanted. Yeah. And a lot of them cost money. And I found out once I got in sales, this is the only business mm-hmm. where you get paid exactly what you're worth. So, Success at IBM, you pass up the guy, which I love that story. That was a shocker to yeah. me. Yeah. Well, it probably shocked that guy and yeah. that whole mentality of shutting it down after Thanksgiving. So you catch the eye of Kevin Riley, and you come on to work for Lamar. <laughs> yeah. Where Lamar was at that time. Yeah, you're leaving, 24 companies. Yeah, you're leaving a sweet gig to... Yeah. Uh, what happened was that IBM promoted me to, to run sales schools for IBM. Mm-hmm. And so I was doing it in Atlanta and out on the West Coast outside of what is now called Silicon Valley, and running back and forth and training IBM reps. And I get a phone call one day, and I've only been up there, not even a year yet. I get a phone call from Kevin one day, and he says, hey, Tom, this is Kevin Raleigh Jr. I said, well, hey, Kevin, how you been? I mean, we see each other every now and then, but we remember each other from when, when he was at the Cadian Club. And so he says, look, I've got a uh, a – job idea. I've got a, a marketing plan here that I want to show you and I want to get your opinion on it. And I said, well, yeah, sure. Okay. And he said, well, look, I can be there in about two hours. And I said, wait, Kevin, I don't live, I don't work in Baton Rouge. <laughs> I, I work in Atlanta now. He said, oh, I know that. I have a jet. I'll see you in two hours. So he flies up there and you can't even get in an IBM building un- unless you have a name tag. Right. You're not even allowed to come in if you're invited to come in. So I had to meet him in the garage and we talked and he just said, look, these are the, the good things about Lamar and here are the things that we think are problems why I'm talking to you. And I want you to consider. And I said, I work for the number one company in the world. Right. Yeah. And for a Louisiana guy, I'm kind of on a fast track, you know, I'm, but it, it's going to end quickly because the Harvard guys will take it over right. you know, real quick. And uh, he said, I want to bring you back Thanksgiving with your family and just let's go tour the office and let's talk. And at that point, I went back, made the decision to go to to work at Lamar. Mm -hmm. And then IBM senior staff brought me in a room and told me I was crazy and that why would I give this up to go to work and sell billboards? I'm sure your wife was asking the same question, too. No, because Kevin sent her flowers oh. and a note, we want you to come home. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so is. I lost that battle, too. I mean, Kevin was so smart. Yeah. I mean, he was working her all the time. Yeah. And I would tell you this, that was the, obviously the best decision I ever oh, made. Yeah. I mean, our life is golden compared to what it would have been if I stayed with IBM and right. grown with IBM. And those people that were in that room, most of them over the past several years have called me to tell me, that I was a genius and they were a bunch of idiots, that they should have followed me over to Lamar while they had a chance. Yeah. So Kevin hires you on. Yeah. There's not an established established brand in New York, LA, where the big agencies are. No. So you sacrificed a lot because you're in New York. You would leave every Sunday night, Monday morning 
and get back Friday night. And there's a little story behind that. Don Byers was the uh, president of the Institute of Outdoor Advertising, okay, yep. which was the marketing side of the OAAA. Mm-hmm. It was in New York, and the OAAA was the legal side, and it was in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was McElroy who was running OAAA. This was before Nancy. And Don Byers was the head of the Institute of Outdoor Advertising. Mm-hmm. And Don became sick and we didn't know how sick and Roland McElroy called me up and you know he cleared it with Kevin first and he said look I need somebody to run the marketing side for the OAAA which is called the IOA and um would you do it it'd only be for about six months and I said well let me talk to Kevin he said I already did Kevin said he's okay with that so I said okay and it started immediately it was you need to get ready with the Obie Awards, oh, and you need to put that together. You need to make sure the marketing programs at the OAAA are up and running and still running. And by the way, right now in the next six months, you probably have at least 70 to 75 ad club presentations you need to make. How long had you been working in and out of home at this point? That happened in 1991. In fact, he called me. I was 39, and I was 40 the first day. Mm. And... So I guess I had been working with Lamar about four years. At so now you're, you're still fresh. Oh, yeah. You're still trying to figure out this Lamar. And we're, look, I'm working for Lamar. We're the bottom of the food chain. Yeah. Okay. We always sit in the back of the room. So that's when I started flying up. Either I'd leave early, early Monday morning or I'd leave Sunday night. And I would fly back on Fridays. And I usually would land in Baton Rouge about 1 a.m. on Saturday mornings. That six months went to a little over two years. Because Don had cancer of the esophagus, and he ended up being cured of it, but he had such a great package that it was better for him to stay home and take care of his health. And so then they asked me to stay on until they found the replacement, who ended up being the vice president of CBS Television in marketing. And then when Gordon came in, he confided in me that he had never done a budget in his life, and that and he didn't know anything about an Obie Award. They didn't tell him anything about that. So he asked me to stay on. And that's how it stretched out so long. Yeah. That's a pretty strategic move on Kevin's part, right? You're the lowest outdoor company in barely in a handful of markets, 24, 25 markets. Yeah. And now you're running marketing for the association. It was strategic and the stars were aligned perfectly mm-hmm. because we were out of cash at Lamar. Right. And uh, so... So he was writing you off the payroll. He was probably knew that he probably knew before I knew that we were going to probably have to shut down the entire marketing department. Yeah. And so it was a perfect timing because he said, take everything you do up there with the OAAA and we will rebrand it here at Lamar and the reps will use that until we get you back. Right. But what was beautiful about it, I mean, it, it was really God's provision that all this happened because what a great place to develop relationships oh, absolutely. with advertisers agencies and buying services because then it was even smaller community than it is right now and we were all growing up together you know you mentioned uh, absolute vodka and the campaign at that time arnie arlo who was the guy the creative director that came up with that rest his soul now i mean he died a couple years back but arnie arnie and i became good friends and bonnie who developed the because i'm worth it campaign right it was a small enough community where you got to know them you develop relationships. Mm-hmm. 
you got to know the the people that were making the buying decisions and i would never have had that opportunity had the cosmos moved the way it did and and me getting that opportunity to go into new york so we talk about that a lot the out-of-home space and the people are what make it so unique you never will have the heads of executives or vice presidents of Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, and Google all in a room. It'll never happen. Never. And what the OAAA has done is allowed everyone and organically, you just become friends, you know, yeah. different people like Andy Strebus and, yeah. and Dan Levy. And those are two of our major competitors. And we have this fun relationship we share and we grow as an industry. What does that look like for you though? Because at the beginning- you have the opportunity now to be in front of agencies as well and, yeah. and some very iconic people. I'm glad you brought up the Absolute Vodka. That's actually what yeah. got me in yeah. out of home. Yeah. So you're in front of, at the time, people that probably on the TV side, radio side, newspaper yeah. would die to be in front of, and you have intimate relationships with them. And we're growing at this point, but yeah. still a small billboard company. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the strategy besides just being around very iconic people? Like, how did you weave in the Lamar? Oh, and by the way. You know, I would love to say I I did it consciously. Uh, I didn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have had incredible luck and I was blessed in so many situations because, because I had to sit in front of so many ad clubs. And then once you do that, you get pulled into other organizations. I mean, like Gannett would asked me to come in and speak. Meredith Corporation, which at that time owned just about every magazine from Field and Stream to Cosmopolitan, Mm -hmm. would call me up and ask me to come in and talk to their sales force. It gave me just a little bit of, I guess, of a stage to get into the inside of those organizations Mm -hmm. and to meet key people. And not so much to sell them, but I guess to basically, in a way, audition to say, look, we're pretty smart too. Right. We understand marketing too. These are the things that we do. This is how our people sell. And all of a sudden I found doors open. So it wasn't, I didn't consciously go in there with the banner Lamar because I knew that that's not the way Kevin would ever want me to do it. You got to earn the right. Just like in a sales call. One of the things that I, that I love about Tommy is he's, I call you the master of proverbs. And I pulled this quote out that you said, Patience, persistence does win the hearts of kings. Patient persistence will win the hearts of kings. Yeah. And that's a proverb, yeah. Yep. Patient persistence will win the hearts of kings. And what I used to say, for those of you that don't really understand that, just understand this, that in the battle between water and a rock, water wins. Mm-hmm. Because in time, water will wear down that rock right. through patient persistence. And that's one of the things that we have to understand in selling is that you can't be a one-hit wonder. It's got to be developing the relationships. It's doing what you say you're going to do. It's delivering what the client expects, and if at all possible, above and beyond what the client expects, and earn that right. Because back then, if we were going to ever get competitive with television, yep. we had to do a lot more. Now, again, who would ever thought that you look at the world today and you see that the major networks are fighting for their lives? Right. And our equity levels are just getting larger and larger. So to that point of patience and persistence, fast forward, Lamar goes public. Yeah. What does that feel like? All right. The first thing, the first relief valve was in 92, 93, when I remember I met 
Kevin and Keith, who was our CFO, who, my gosh, protected this castle like nobody could. They landed late at night at the airport, and a couple of us went out there to see them, and they had just floated a $100 million bond issue that was going to allow us to take out all these high-interest loans that were ridiculously high, Mm -hmm. consolidate them, and now we would have enough money to be able to run the business. That was like, we made it. We made it. I mean, I think Kevin was more excited that night than he was when we went public. And then when we went public, it was a validation. My old man was a CPA, mm-hmm. and he was furious with me when I went to work with Xerox. Then he thought I was a moron going to IBM. And then when I got in the billboard business, he knew I was on a slippery slope. Yeah. Okay. And that was validation to my daddy that now you got some kind of future, you know, not working for a bunch of guys that are putting billboards up on pine trees. Right, exactly. So, and this kind of dips into a different time. And it's funny because I went back last night and I was looking through Mad Men episodes and I'm a huge Don Draper fan, like most ad people. And they were talking about Lucky Strike and the pitch for Lucky Strike cigarettes and how Don Draper at the last moment comes through with this heroic thing. Yeah. Talk about the day that the federal government bans billboard advertising for cigarettes. Yeah. I remember that so well. We were in the old building. And so there was my office and Jerry Marchand and then Kevin. And I always keep my back to the door because I'm so ADD. I I get too distracted. And I hear him walking by and he stops and he said, did you hear what happened last night? And I turned around and I said, yeah. What percentage of our It was well over, it was well over 16%. At one time it would have been 25%. But even then it was well over 16%. And he said, we just lost 16% of our business. And he said, and I am really going to be interested by the end of the day on what you're going to do to fix that. And I went, huh. he said, no, I'm serious. And then he walked off. That, that's when I knew if we were going down, I was going down with it. And we had to get incredibly aggressive. By the way, it was the best thing ever happened to us. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. There's a couple yeah. other things that could fall off of our radar and we'd all be happy. Here oh, today. yeah. Give us one, there probably wasn't one saving account, but you well, have this I would, Rolodex. I will tell you this, I did have one account, I'm not going to mention who it is, but it, it was huge, and we all had a sense that this, that was being discussed on right. the Hill, but we didn't think it was going to happen, mm-hmm. and so the week before, I called this one account, and it was time to renew, and they were a big player, and we're talking millions of dollars, and in those days... You know, when, you know, your company's making maybe 80 million, five or six million dollars can make a big difference in your life. And so I called them up and I said, look, it's time to renew the space. And they said, well, well, you know, we want to think about a little bit more. We, you know, we're, we're doing a few things. And I kept making those calls. And so finally, two days before that information came out, I got on the phone with the person and I just simply said, listen, you got those locations 15, 20 years ago, the best locations, every one of our cities, and they've served you well. They said, yeah, we like them. And I said, and we've helped them. And they said, yeah, but you know, we're good for the money. And I said, well, let me tell you, I'm not sure you are because you've been holding out this long. And I got to tell you, there's a list of people that want it. So if I don't hear from you by the end of the day, tomorrow morning, 
I'm going to tell the next guy in line have the board. Okay. And you can buy more. Sure. But you're not getting that location. Mm -hmm. And that evening I got a phone call from that person and he said, okay, we'll go ahead and renew. Yeah. They renewed. And it was 24 hours later that Kevin had come in my office and said, I'm interested to see what you're going to do. Perfect. And you just slid over the contract. You were like, we're good. We're done. Uh, no, I weren't done. Yeah. That's one brick in the wall. <laughs> okay. So that's the unique part about it. And then so, we went after Procter & Gamble. Right. Yeah. yeah. Package goods. And that difference for the listeners that aren't billboard people, location is, is key. And when Premier Locations in every city has the Marlboro Man on it, yeah, that's significant. And look, I understand the buyer, they're being pressured, mm-hmm. okay? And we're being pressured. And we want to take care of them. Yeah. We want to. But sometimes they forget that the value of what they bought 15 years ago has gone up like every other piece of real estate. And sometimes you got to make those hard decisions. For those of you out there in Radio Land, Ian just tipped over a whole cup of water. water. (laughs) That'll be in the blooper wheels. Wait, let's pause here for one second. Yeah, we have a waterfall. Digital and Dirt is brought to you by Lamar Advertising. To learn more, check out the links in the description or go to lamar.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Spotify, Apple, or other platforms where podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.